from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. This is BPR News Presents 2020 Local Election Special. I'm Matt Bush, BPR's News Director, and I'll be leading you in this hour-long program that examines two key local races in Western North Carolina, Asheville City Council and North Carolina State House District 119. But before we get to those, in-person early voting is underway in North Carolina. In recent years, it has become an increasingly popular way to cast a ballot. And even in the pandemic, tens of thousands in our region will use this method. I spoke with Buncombe County Elections Director Corrine Duncan over Zoom about early voting and what you need to know before you go. So early voting is in-person voting, and it's at the hours all across the state are from Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. And then each county has uh, was directed to choose 10 hours over the weekends to also be open. In Buncombe County, we're open Saturdays and Sundays from 10 to 3, both days. And then on the last Saturday, all across the state, early voting will be open from 8 o'clock to 3 p.m. And a change was made this year that made all locations open. So we used to be able to open a few sites up the first week and then open up more sites later. But now all of the sites will be open for all the time and uh, share all the same hours. So we'll break this down this way. People have already registered to vote. What do they do to vote early? If you're already registered to vote, you just show up at any early voting location in your county. So you don't have to go to a specific one. You can go to any early voting location and you'll show up just like you would on election day. State your name and address and the uh, poll worker will look you up in the system, have you sign the affidavit, and then you will be off to vote. If someone was not registered to vote, this is the only way they can vote if they have not registered to vote by now. So for those coming to register to vote and then vote during the early voting period, known as same-day registration, what do they need to know? What do they need to bring? That's correct. So early voting has the same-day registration, which is only happens during early voting. The registration deadline has passed. That was uh, last Friday, the 9th. And uh, so if you have not registered yet, this is the way to do it. So at early voting, you can register and vote on the same day. And you'll need to bring a some type of proof of residence. So that can be your driver's license with your current address or a utility bill, something like that. Bring that with you and we'll get you registered and off to vote. Okay, obviously this has been a very popular thing, particularly in Buncombe County, to vote early in recent years. But this year we'll be doing with, with doing that with a pandemic happening. So what sorts of regulations and restrictions and um, things will be in place to ensure people are social distancing uh, during the early voting period? Because we have seen the times, you know, lines can be a little long. They move, but they can be a little long. So what sorts of things will be in place this year during early voting to ensure people are not uh, spreading the virus? So during all of our in-person voting, we will have a greeter. So it's a, a, a poll worker that will greet you when you come into the voting location. They will have hand sanitizer, they'll have masks, and they will have single-use pens for you so that you can go through the voting process without sharing many things. Um, and 
the poll workers themselves will have full PPE as well. They'll have gloves. They will be wearing masks and face shields if, uh, if they uh, choose to. Plus, they will have the plexiglass shield in front of them at each check-in station to protect both the poll worker and the voter. They'll go through the check-in process and then proceed to a voting booth, which has been cleaned. The voting booths will be cleaned between each and every voter. And then you'll uh, put your ballot into the scanner and uh, off you go. Unfortunately, we will not have I Voted stickers this year, uh, but we do hope that the state-provided pens will say I Voted on them. Very good. Um, for people coming there, is there a requirement to wear masks, requirement to social distance in line? That's a very good question. So in North Carolina, as directed by the State Board of Elections, no voter can be turned away. So if someone absolutely refuses to wear a mask, they still will be served. However, we believe that it is extremely important that people wear masks, that they do so to protect other people and we will make sure that masks are available to any voter that comes in who's not wearing one, and we will encourage them to do so. And again, six feet uh, in lines and things like that, what sorts of things will be in place for that? Social distancing protocol will be adhered to at all of the early voting locations, very similar to what you see in the grocery store. You're staying six feet apart. Uh, the floor will be marked to help you with that and all of the voting booths have been spread apart to be six feet apart. We actually increased the size of our early voting locations. We had a lot picked out <laughs> in March. We made a lot of changes, including moving to the Civic Center. So we have a very large voting location there. And um, Yes, so, so social distancing will definitely be followed. Leads into my next question, which is, are there particular times that where voting lines or where the sort of need for it or the crush for the amount of voters going is larger than others? Is there a time maybe that is a good time for people to go when the lines will be shorter? Lines definitely tend to be shorter in the morning. And our busiest locations tend to be the North Asheville and the South Asheville locations. But looking at that map really helps. You can go there and see, uh, see, the, see what's happening at, at those locations. Curbside voting. So curbside voting is for those due to age or physical disability aren't able to go into the polling locations. And so we are not accepting absentee ballots at those at curbside because we want to make sure that we're prioritizing those sites for the people who really need it, who can't go into the voting location. And we are accepting absentee ballots at early voting locations, but you'll have to go inside to, uh, to turn in that ballot. We of course are accepting absentee ballots at our office at 77 McDowell Street, and we have been for weeks and it's been going fantastic. So that's always an option for you if you don't want to wait in line at an early voting. Right, we're now into the we're now into the early voting period, but absentee mail-in ballots you can still request a ballot, still uh, bring it in, still within the time frame to make sure that it is coded, counted uh, by election day or soon thereafter. So tell us a bit more about now that you're into about a month of you know collecting absentee ballots. How has that gone, and what sorts of things have you all seen as this process has gone on that you would like to share with people that still may be thinking about voting that way but haven't made a decision? 
So absentee voting has been larger than ever by far in North Carolina and, and probably across the nation. Uh, and speaking just to Buncombe County for an example, in 2016, we had 7,700 requ requests approximately, and that was for the entire election. We still have a few weeks where you can request an absentee ballot and we have 50,000 requests. So it just keeps getting bigger. Our staff, we, we keep adding people, um, but it's been difficult for us to keep up with, with the, the level of requests that we've gotten. And so um, we're uh, a little behind in getting the request processed they will absolutely be processed on time, but uh, I just wanted to mention that because it, uh, you know, you might turn in your request and not hear something from us, and I want to make sure that, that people know why. But yes, you can still request an absentee ballot. October 27th is the deadline for the request, but if you are mailing in the request, you really need to do it before then to make sure that there's turnaround time for you to be able to mail your ballot. And if you are at all worried about mailing your ballot back in, then dropping it off in person is a good option. That's Corinne Duncan, Buncombe County Elections Director. You can hear more of our interview, plus see all the early voting locations in our listing area and the times they are open by using our early voting guide, which you can find with the free BPR mobile app or at our website, bpr.org. Moving on to some of the races voters will be deciding whether they use early voting, absentee by mail voting, or voting on election day. We'd have to forego all the programming you love, cherish, and support so much to showcase all the local races on the ballot this year. So in our local election special, we'll focus on just two of them. First, Asheville City Council. Five candidates are running for three spots. Sandra Kilgore, Rich Lee, Kim Roney, Sage Turner, and Keith Young, the lone incumbent city council member running this year. Earlier this week, BPR and the Asheville Citizen Times held an online forum over Zoom with the candidates. You can watch it in full right now on the BPR Facebook page. We now bring you a portion of that with my co-moderator for the forum, Casey Blake, opinion editor for the Citizen Times, asking the first question to Rich Lee. So we are just going to jump, jump uh, straight into the deep end here and talk about the Asheville Police Department, which of course has been a, a huge conversation in our community here in recent months. So amid calls to defund the APD by half or more, the city council recently voted to reallocate 3% of the city's police budget, which as you all know is second only to the water system and its expenditures. So tell us, what policy measures will you propose and how will you vote when it comes to funding the city's police department in the next fiscal year? Rich, take it. Oh, I really appreciate this question, Casey. So, you know, I think like um, so many people in um, the city and across the country, what the nationwide um, multi-generational, multi-racial movement for, um, for justice in the wake of the Breonna Taylor and George Floyd killings has shown is that there is no longer an, an appetite for the status quo of policing in America. And that includes the policing in Asheville, which we know is disparate in its enforcement and application. We know, um, thanks to research by the NAACP 
and um, acknowledged by city council and Asheville Police Department that black citizens of the city are being stopped while driving, um, while walking. They're disproportion um, disproportionately more than other residents of the city. We know that the economics and cultural impacts of um, of, of over policing of black and, and um, low income communities, and and also like the, the the potential for for literal violence and death, are um, are are being born and have been born for too long by the segment of our community. And uh, and there, what I see when I talk to members of our community is that there is a, a broad consensus that that has to change. What that has changed to, I don't know. I hear the calls from groups like um, Black Asheville Demands and the Racial Justice Coalition for a 50% defunding of the police department and a shift of those resources to other nonviolent, unarmed, um, non-law enforcement-centered or enforcement-centered um, um, public safety measures. And... I support those. Now, you asked about this coming fiscal year, and I don't, I honestly don't know if the proposals and the replacement community supports and community programs can be brought online within the next fiscal year fast enough that, that um, I could feel comfortable casting that vote in this coming fiscal year. But I believe that we need to move with haste. We need to recognize the crisis that has been building in America and the problem and bring our minds together, call it our moonshot, call it our Manhattan Project, to reinvent the way public safety is carried out in the city by, by, by um, changing the way that we enforce nonviolent um, crimes of homelessness, trespassing, um, uh, possession of small amounts of drugs and alcohol, by moving those to programs that are actually supportive, like housing first approaches and so forth. Yes, within my first term, I would expect to vote to reduce the um, the um, footprint of the policing in Asheville by as much as 50%. I think 50% is the goal we ought to set our sights on. Thank you. Next up is Kim Roney. Thank you so much. Um, I want to start with the situation that this conversation isn't new. We've been having this conversation as a country and as a city for a long time. Um, about policing, about how policing as we know it is violent. It's reflective of our, our relationship with each other and the planet where we treat our natural resources and people as disposable. And my heart is broken. But thankfully, we have a very generous request from Black AVL demands and intergenerational Black leadership saying that we need to divest from policing so we can invest in long-term safety strategies. And I agree. Um, we have a lot of work in our community that can be done to be amplified, whether it's reentry programs, diversion programs, mentorship programs, um, addressing things that are making people feel unsafe, which is lack of access to housing, to education, to economic mobility. Um, and we also have to think about like what keeps us safe if it's not keeping everyone safe. We're seeing a lot of times we're sending the wrong person for the wrong task at hand. And it's disproportionately deadly for our black and brown and indigenous neighbors. So we are going to have to make some bold steps, but we're not alone. Um, we do need to identify and stop the harm being done. So I wanna talk about the fact that we do have a problem with racial bias and traffic stops. Right now, we do have written consent to search policy adopted for vehicles 
but it wasn't extended to any other mode of transportation. So right now, someone driving down the road has more constitutional protection of their rights than someone like myself that's walking on a sidewalk or on the side of the road. Um, so we have an opportunity while we're having the conversation about reimagining public safety to divest from policing so we can invest in long-term safety strategies to address some of the harm that's being done immediately. We also need a community engagement process that's at least as broad and deep as the noise ordinance process from 2019, where we took eight months and um, really engaged the community where they were, not just a forum online, not just a input survey, um, but a multifaceted approach to meet people in the way that they could participate fully. Um, we also need to think about what climate change means as the biggest public safety issue of our time and that resilient communities and resilient neighborhoods um, are part of making sure that a neighborhood um, can bounce back and be safe in a crisis mode, similar to the crisis that we're in right now. So I'm gonna be looking to the people most affected. And that means that because this work can't be done alone to reimagine public safety, I need the people listening to this call to start having conversations in community and with neighborhood associations and with elected officials, with people of all ages in your community about what makes you feel safe when do you feel unsafe and what would make you feel like you had everything that you need to survive and to thrive? So I think that we have a huge lift ahead of us, but a lot of room for possibility. And I think doing this work together will be a cause for celebration. Okay. Thank you, Kim. Up next is Sage Turner. Thank you for this question. Um, I, I do believe that we need to analyze and change the way that we are addressing public safety as a community. I think it's going to take time and a constant checking of ourselves and review of what we change and how it's impacting our community. You know, I think the community deserves to remain safe and feel safe while we're undergoing these changes, so we need to be careful how we proceed. There's a lot of, when I talk with community members right now, I'm hearing a lot of concern and confusion in some of the terms being used, and I think uh, it's helpful to hear all the candidates express what they're feeling, which is that more, some folks are more vulnerable than others. We have had historic practices that have created trends, particularly with Black Asheville, that have um, impacted lives and disrupted lives for long periods of time, and, are, and no one supports that anymore. So we do need to look at um, our racial biases and particularly profiling. Uh, someone mentioned the traffic stops. We do have a disproportionate amount of traffic stops that are also leading to more arrests. And so the written consent to search a vehicle is great. I agree that it should be extended to the pedestrian. I also think we need to look at why we're seeing vehicles that are able to be pulled over for minor infractions, whether it's registration expired or bad taillights. There are other cities that have programs that help nonprofits that are created to help citizens remember to keep these things in check and reduce the amount of being pulled over or profiled or what may come from that. Um, I think as general public safety, we're going to be able to change the way we budget and what we fund on simple principles of understanding that mental health needs need mental health assistance, that we do not need to send armed officers to these particular situations all the time, or that we have a citizen that is experiencing an addiction crisis, that we send someone that is a specialist in addiction. I do believe that we're going to be able to reduce the police budget. I do not know uh, if it can reach 50%. I think there are too many unknowns to be able to stand behind that number right now, and I think um, I support what the Racial Justice Coalition has been working on, and I think that number might just be out there as a goal, but there's a lot of work to do to get to whether or not we can support that much of a cut. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Sage. Up next is Councilman Keith Young. Thank you. Um, these are, this is a really good question. 
I would say to anyone that is potentially may be on council, whether I'm there or someone else is, I think when these conversations are had, we need to be very intentional about how we got to this conversation. And that is because black people in this country are dealing with issues that are systemic in nature. And the same systemics that allow Confederate statues to go up and disparities in policing to continue are the very same systemics that recycle itself generation after generation and still remain, leaving us as black Americans with disparities in so many areas. And so when we come to George Floyd, the death of George Floyd uh, has been the catalyst to this nation's largest civil rights movement. I've said it before, a movement that is supported by black Americans, but also by white allies to the black community, allies that I'm thankful for and deeply appreciate. But nonetheless, this is a movement that largely describes the treatment of blacks in America for a sustained period of time. Um, This is not just the city of Asheville issue. These are issues that local municipalities and diverse communities across this country have to wrestle with through a larger context within American history. And what has happened through it that brings us to this very point in time, um, we are at a moment where action needs to occur. Uh, I was at the forefront of pushing through the the search, uh, limiting the search capabilities on vehicles that pulled over. I didn't get to the point to where we could do that for pedestrians, but I hope to return to council and be able to do that. I think when we talk about uh, how do we allocate money for fund, uh, how do we allocate money within the police department, I think we also have to take a greater understanding of, yes, we need, you know, I would definitely, my coffee maker's going off, I would definitely uh, look at reducing funding for the police department, but there has to be an expectation of, if we are going to reduce services that the police provide right now, do we have the infrastructure already in place to implement new services and to keep those services at a, at the same sustained level? Overall, it's about how I'm policed and how my community members are policed uh, in a way that is detrimental to our health and wealth as a community overall. And so when looking at the overall perspective of What are we going to do with policing, not only in America, but here locally? We have to have conversations with people in the community. We have to be able to understand that we don't want police gone, but we do want police to not pull me over because I have a a bad tag or to not kick my butt for walking across the street. And so those are the larger issues that we we need to look at, which is going to be very complex. Um, And it's going to take time, but there are some low-hanging fruit that we can do. I wish I had more time. She says I have 15 seconds. Uh, obviously, these are conversations that take more than three minutes to answer. And I hope to come back to council to be able to help with these. Okay. Thank you, Councilman Young. Lastly, Sandra Kilgore. Yes. Um, and thank you for asking this question, too, because this is a major problem in the city, and it's it's a major problem all over the country. Uh, the police department, as far as defunding them 50%, um, I am not on board with that particular plan. I'm, I'm on board with what is the outcome we, what we would like to see? How do we reimagine our police department? How do we reimagine the services that we provide to the community? That's what I'm more concerned with. So in order to divest and in, invest, I am definitely for that. I think we need to do it. But I think we have to do it in a responsible way. Because the thing is, if we do not do it in a responsible way, then the citizens in the community will be the ones that suffer. So, but I definitely think it is something that we need to do. 
basically what has happened is the police department has taken on uh, things that are really not their responsibility. As far as dealing with mental health, they do not have the wherewithal, or, you know, to deal with that. So therefore, maybe we need to actually start uh, developing uh, strategizing and developing a task force that can better able serve those people. And as well as the homelessness, that too can be addressed with another arena. And so I'm thinking that basically, um, and as far as the, um, the, the pulling over people and stopping them and the, the things like that, that is an issue. But I think a major part of that issue is our police force. You know, we need to start doing a better job vetting our uh, candidates for those positions. Uh, we need to do a better job in uh, training those people. Because what happens is it's not so much the rules, it's the people that's doing these things, which have been allowed to do these things by a system that basically turned uh, ahead pretty much when they happen. And I, I tell you, I was actually arrested in my her room as a flight attendant uh, back years ago because, um, and, I, and my crime was parking tickets. I was thrown up against the counter, handcuffed. Or, uh, and everything before someone came out to stop him. And that basically was because I had spoken out on some things that the company didn't allow. And so they allowed the police department to do that to me. Uh, and I'm a female. So you can imagine what a lot of the blacks are feeling in the community. You know, we're always so afraid. If you're, if, if you see a black person in a car driving, if they see a policeman come up behind them, automatic, it's a fear factor that, you know, uh, comes over them. And that should not happen. We need to really start working with the police department, community police, uh, and developing a relationship where there is not that fear. Because basically that's what's going on in the police department. It's a fear in the police department. And that's the reason they think that it's okay to shoot and kill people just because they're afraid. They're afraid. And those are things that, I, like I said, those are more or less issues that are internal uh, these are issues that we need to address uh, because a lot of bad actors are in the police. Andrew, department. you are at time. If you could just just finish okay. that final thought. Okay. <laughs> yes. But anyway, so uh, yes. So thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Sandra. We'll go to the next question. I'll be asking that, and Kim Roney will be taking this question first. We're now into, at the end, actually, of the seventh month of the COVID-19 pandemic, almost to the day. And it is certainly likely to sustain itself, almost certainly will sustain itself until you would be taking office or you would be starting another term in office. The economic and social impacts and aftermath of the pandemic, though, are going to last for years, if not this uh, rest of this decade. What do you see the city government's role in helping to slow the effects of the pandemic to help end it? And then what specific policies do you support to help Asheville recover from the pandemic once it has concluded? You know, I have to start with, um, we've set our economy up for failure and no one could have thought that this was this year was coming. Um, so I carry this responsibility with a very heavy heart, um, but I am grateful to live in Appalachia where people are resourceful and caring. So. Um, one of the things we're going to have to address is resource scarcity. We do have limitations in our city budget. We need more transparency in our emergency relief funds to make sure that they're being used efficiently um, and having equitable outcomes. Um, we need to address our tourism development 
authority funds and our hotel occupancy taxes so that they can help to address some of the root causes of poverty and issues that we're having in our community. It's going to be up to city council to ensure our core city services are maintained. Um, it's going to mean that we have to have people who are making tough decisions at city hall um, and holding our, our top level staff accountable. Um, one of the primary things we can do, which I've heard in conversation among this group of candidates and I appreciate is we need to keep people in their homes. So eviction protection funds are gonna be critical for affordability of housing. And so we don't increase homelessness issues in our community. The city staff released a memo this summer explaining that homeless services cost more than ending homelessness. Um, I'm looking at what communities like Lynchburg, Virginia are doing to essentially get to zero veteran homelessness in, our, in their community. And one of the results that they said helped to meet that outcome is for functional homeless, functional zero homelessness is that um, they got to know people by name. So we have to humanize the situation and instead of competing for resources, find a way to work together. And that means all of our regional budgets um, and it means bringing together the business community um, and individuals and neighborhoods um, and expressing to our council the importance of prioritizing healing of the, of the people and planet and while we ensure a just transition through the COVID-19 pandemic and economic instability, making sure that we don't head in the same direction again because um, lack of diversity and economic opportunity and um, barriers to economic mobility have put us in a situation where the people who are most vulnerable and our neighbors who are hurting the most um, will have a harder time um, with the damage that's been. Um, so it's really gonna be about our community coming together Okay, thank you, Kim. Up next is Sage Turner. Thank you. Uh, tough question, right? Not just in Asheville, but everywhere, and particularly in cities like ours that have become so reliant on transient or tourist-based revenues. Um, so I think uh, the city of Asheville did a great job pivoting very quickly to help local businesses and uh, area residents pivot. And I think right now we have 78 businesses using an outdoor public space amendment or change to their outdoor dining or curbside pickup, things like that to help um, <clears throat> businesses adapt. Uh, we also received CARES Act funding, about $615,000, and then voted, council voted and redistributed some to rental assistance and homelessness prevention. And there's another 900000 coming into the community that council will be able to vote on how to prioritize that as well. Um, so I think we're going to have to advocate locally and federally. So those were both, the CARES Act is obviously federal and outside of our hands, but then we have things like uh, local activity around the One Buncombe Fund, which raised over a million dollars for locals and helped about 500 people stay in their homes. And then we, um, several of us lobbied the CBB and the TDA to reallocate some of the money they had set aside. So we did a $5 million infusion into businesses. And I know I've personally helped several businesses apply and receive that funding and it was a saving grace for them. I would like for us to look at another round of that. You know, we can sit here and point at higher governance and say we need more funding, but we also have mechanisms for local and I would like for us to try that again. Um, I think, you know, someone mentioned, I think it was Kim, about the overall sustainability. If we're going to rely on tourism, then we have to be ready for the times when tourism fails. So I'm a big proponent of housing and um, growing residential population in downtown, particularly, and along major corridors, which is where most of our businesses reside. 
And I think if we want to look long-term at creating a community that can sustain the amount of local businesses and restaurants and innovative uh, nonprofits and small organizations that we currently have, then we're going to need more residential population within areas that are these businesses exist, and they will become uh, residual and consistent revenues for those businesses. Um, I don't think it's going to be easy, and I think first and foremost, we have to be safe. Right now, we're experiencing another spike with COVID. We had, just since October, we've had, I believe, eight uh, more deaths, putting us around 92 total deaths in our county, and the cases are spiking. We've had hundreds of new cases this month. So I'm not advocating for us to rush out and do all these things. We're going into the cold and flu season, and we need to be safe. Our primary focus is to be safe. So if we can get to work creating funding pools and new allocations and perhaps pressuring the TDA and CDB to do another round and remain safe. And I think that's our best strategy forward. And long-term, it's going to take a whole different mess of um, initiatives and incentives and focus to really get Asheville to the place that is relying on its local to um, keep us sustainable. Sorry, I'm out of time. Thank you. Thank you, Sage. Up next is Councilman Keith Young. I'm going to be uh, a little stickler and ask if you could read the question. I want to make sure I don't get too far off track. Absolutely. Well, we're in the seventh month of the pandemic, and it is likely to sustain itself well past the time uh, you would be taking a second term in office if you're starting your second term in office if you are reelected. The economic and social aftermath and effects of the pandemic are going to last for years, if not the rest of this decade. What do you see the city government's role in helping slow the effects of the pandemic to help it end? And what specific policies do you support to help Asheville recover from the pandemic? once it has ended. Okay. Um, so right now, you know, the city of Asheville has already started to contribute to small businesses. Um, uh, the One Buncombe Fund was basically a community uh, COVID-19 response fund that was sponsored by the Buncombe County Services Foundation. Um, and through donations and basically sponsorships and grants, we were able to raise about $1.3 million. This was basically just bridge funding, providing relief to uh, small businesses in the area um, and individuals and kind of uh, help lessen whatever impact COVID-19 may have had on their lives um, to, to whatever extent it could. A long-term fund could be set up for future use with possible um, annual contributions from the city. Another thing that we need to take into account is the human capital of people losing jobs during this time period of COVID-19. Uh, I have been working with the Chamber of Commerce in a program with April Brown called the Inclusive Hiring Partners uh, Jobs Program that the Chamber is, is doing right now. And that's a program that connects people and families uh, facing significant employment barriers, um, long-term employment barriers. And basically, it gives career opportunities in some of these high-demand industries that may not be tourism. Um, and so there are relationships that are brought together with our community partners and each participant in the program um, where they have a success coach, a peer support specialist to help basically ensure smooth transitions back into the workforce. Um, and the goal is to basically increase workforce participation and job retention. Also, uh, some of the forecasts that we've had about our budget moving forward, um, we originally thought that our fund balance was going to take a major hit moving forward into the next budget cycle. Um, the, that is not the case, so as it seems. Our fund balance will actually be between 16 and 18 percent. I want to say 17 to 18 percent, I believe, um, which is going to be a good, healthy place for our fund balance to be. We will have opportunities 
to invest in some other ways for small businesses. Um, we've also had COVID funding to help relieve the city of some of its um, some of some of its some of its uh, heavy lifting uh, when it comes to COVID nineteen. If you watch buses, we've got buses to keep people socially distanced. Uh, we've got young buses trailing our regular buses and running routes, and that's from some of the COVID nineteen funding. Um, try not to miss a point here. Let's see. Um, moving forward, moving forward, I think we're really going to have to focus on uh, the people that are here. Um, we've 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 put some funding forward for eviction. Um, uh, courts have slowed down, but right now, uh, I think and the the the, the uh, chief justice of the North Carolina has extended some of these these uh, these these. Uh, oh my gosh. She's extended some of the orders that she's had. I blew that whole 30 seconds. And uh, there, and so what we need to do is continue to make sure that we support the folks who are in, in dire need of housing, who are going to be losing their housing and, and, and be able to give them uh, the ability to stay in their homes. And so we've done that on a city level, and I think we need to continue to do that with our CDBG funding moving forward. Okay. Thank you, Councilman Young. Up next is Sandra Kilgore. Thank you. The one thing, uh, first, I would say that we really need to, council really need to concentrate and make sure that we are set to deal with any COVID spikes uh, coming up in the winter and fall. This is a time where it's expected that we will have an increase because people are staying inside and people are tired. And so uh, basically, I think that we should make sure that we have enough uh, products to do uh, um, testing. We make sure we got enough uh ways to do contact tracing and practice all the protocol we need to do to make sure it doesn't grow. We also need to take in consideration that Asheville now has become a hotspot because a lot of people are moving here from other areas. And we need to maybe put something in place, especially if we start seeing a spike that can more or less give us more coverage when those people come in. Some type of uh, 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 a way that they have to go through some type of um, a procedure to ensure they're not bringing, you know, uh, COVID to the area. So I think the council needs to actually look at that before it actually becomes a big issue. Um, as far as the economy, and uh, we really need to, like uh, Keith was saying, uh, they have so much money already set up uh, in other areas to deal with things as far as helping the community with um, evictions but what we really need to do, I think, is because we have so many resources in this city we have uh, that want to help. So I think that we need to really focus on bringing all those resources together and connecting the dots. And that way we could be more efficient in utilizing all the services to help the people. Because there are so many different programs that help with rent control. I mean, not rent, evictions. They help with uh, homelessness. They help with food and different things. Maybe it's a way we can bring all those uh, us resources together and find out a way to best uh, utilize their services to have the greatest impact in the community. I would like to see that. And the one thing we really need to work on is reaching out to the small business people and, you know, sort of seeing what their immediate needs are and uh, maybe we can better address uh, some of the needs and we need to set up a task force or something to deal with that. And, uh, and also, um, we need to, we'll, of course, grow the one bunk of fund that needs to grow and different things like that. And we need to, and as far as the city's concerned, I think that the city really need to look at its budget and, and 
do not spend any money on things that's not necessary and to save as much reserve as possible because I think the future is something we all, you know, don't have a clue as what's going to expect. So I think that's one thing the council should look at, look into. Okay, thank you. Lastly, Richley. Thank you. Um, so the reality is that half the jobs lost in March and April here locally have not been recovered as of September. And um, permanent layoffs are actually increasing even going into the fall, even as we're reopened. Um, this spring, Asheville went from the lowest unemployment in the state to the second highest in one month. Evictions are growing, as the Asheville Citizen Times um, reported last week. Homelessness is increasing. The wave is still invisible because um, people are still couch surfing and co-housing. But it's going to be a wave like we haven't known here. Um, thousands of people, especially women, are permanently dropping out of the workforce. And that hides a lot of disparity. Most of the jobs lost this spring were what's called leisure and hospitality jobs, tourism-related um, and tourism-facing jobs. For health workers and construction trades, finance and tech, it's um, the recession is basically over. But thousands, tens of thousands of people locally, are their, their pain is just now beginning. And it reflects the way that tourism, while it's not a majority of our economy, uh, definitely shapes our economy. For the long term, we need to diversify that economy like nobody has ever tried here before. A different model of economic development needs to happen that focuses on small businesses across industries providing career-track career jobs that can actually bring you into the middle class and keep you there as Asheville continues to grow. That's going to take... Um, um, that's going to take jobs that we don't even have here, like remote jobs. So municipal broadband, Wi-Fi in every public housing development, advanced training, job, training for jobs that aren't even physically here, but can be held by locals working remotely. Because if there's one thing that the COVID recession has taught us, it's that a remote job can be a lifeline. And a local workforce that is richer and, and more stable and has more expendable income is protection for all the small businesses, the restaurants and the services and the, the small independent retail downtown. It's not one or the other. We need a workforce uh, and, a, 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 and a, a pool of customers here that can support these businesses when the tourists dry up. In the short term, though, and it's all about the short term, we need to save our local residents and independent businesses. They're irreplaceable. The diversity and the vibrancy of our community is at stake. We need to release more local funds and get access to the TBA to keep workers and artists and businesses in place because state and federal funding may not be coming or we're going to come out of this a city changed for the worse in so many ways. We need to resist pressure to cut corners and we need to not take easy routes. Don't forget that it was the last recession that um, city staff and city management pushed the rules that allowed the hotel boom, the tourism boom downtown, saying we needed it to save the city. Let's not cut corners. Let's diversify the economy and actually create jobs that my, my kids who want to be archaeologists and historians and zoologists and writers and scientists can actually hold and can keep them in place and support them here in our community. Thanks so much. That's Rich Lee, candidate for Asheville City Council, finishing his response to a question during a forum this week, which included the other candidates running, Sandra Kilgore, Kim Roney, Sage Turner, and current city councilman Keith Young. Three will get elected. You can watch the full forum anytime on the BPR Facebook page. We 
conclude today's show with another of our Facebook candidate forums. This one took place last month on the campus of Western Carolina University, which lies in North Carolina State House District 119. This is one of the most closely watched General Assembly elections in the state, and the candidates are quite familiar with each other and voters. This is the fifth consecutive election that incumbent Democrat Joe Sam Queen and Republican Mike Clampett have faced each other for the seat that covers all of Jackson and Swain counties and a portion of western Haywood County in the North Carolina House of Representatives. PPR's Lily Knepp and Corey Valencourt moderated this forum, and Corey asks the first question, which is directed to Mike Clampett. The Confederate Monument in Jackson County is just down the road, and it's been a flashpoint for the community all summer long. A current state law largely takes the power to remove or relocate monuments out of the hands of cities and counties. Do you support this law? That law was passed by Jim Davis uh, when Jim Davis was in office uh, before I took office. And let's look at something for a second, Mr. Valancourt. History is history. We haven't torn down the pyramids. We haven't torn down the China Wall. We must embrace our history or we're doomed to repeat it. And I think that what we're seeing now with some of the agitation, aggravation, the rioting, and some of the, quote, peaceful protests, such like like last night in Nashville that hurt my good friend Chad Desmond, is out of bounds. If you want to sit down and talk about it, let's sit down and talk about it, folks. The thing about it is those were Americans, too. And to honor Americans, regardless of what war they fought in, has been America's tradition for many, many, many years, 200 years. And I'm not going to back down from taking down any monuments of anyone, anywhere, at any time. But if we want to sit down and have a civil discussion of what you want to talk about, and if you have a list of grievances, I'll be happy to listen. But to write in the street, to burn down other people's businesses in the name of protest and say that, it, that it's an injustice, I've never seen a statue take and make any decisions or have a heavy hand on anyone. Christopher Columbus statue's been vandalized. The great discoverer of America. And we're going to take and change the name of Columbus, Ohio, because it's named after Christopher Columbus. I think we have some real issues, and it has a lot to do with education in the schools. The bottom line is, we're not teaching the real history. We've, we've done away with U.S. history. We've taken and, and discipline out of the schools, we've taken the pledge out of schools, and we've taken prayer out of schools. I'm a traditionalist. I think we need to go back to those things and keep doing those things. And those things are very important for our society, our morality, and our youth. And no, I'm not going to take and go for any statues being taken down, and I support the law. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Clampett. Mr. Queen, two minutes. Uh, <clears throat> The law has, has served a purpose, but uh, I think now the conversation needs to expand. And I've always been in favor of local control. So I, uh, uh, I, am, I am, would be in favor of giving uh, local control of, uh, of, of, of monuments and statues. They were put in locally, and they need to be maintained, and, and their, their longevity needs to be at the consent and, and interest of the local community that they're in. I, too, am uh, a very strong uh, advocate of local history and, and our tradition and, and our past. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I help 
uh, uh, Earl Lanning with uh, uh, dedicate his wonderful statue for a uh, a uh, a rifleman uh, a militia rifleman on Haywood County's courthouse uh, last Fourth of July. I like statues. I'm an architect. I think they're part of the civic fabric. But I think you have to let your community have the discussions around these. And when it comes to the Confederacy, uh, 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 there is a lot of, uh, of different opinions, and all of those opinions need to be heard in a community. So I would be interested in uh, letting the locals uh, put together uh, any review uh, uh, a program that they feel is appropriate and uh, and and continue to maintain their statues and their monuments as as they uh, see fit. Thank you, Mr. Queen. Mr. Clampett, your rebuttal, one minute. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to rebut that. Local control is a good thing until it's mob control. And I think what we're seeing today is mob control. A lot of these people is coming in complaining about what they don't like are not even from around here. And if you're not from around here, when I say that, from Swain, Jackson, or Haywood counties, you don't have a dog in this fight, as the old saying goes. With that being said, is that some of these places where these monuments are at are national historic sites. So, Mr. Queen, you're telling me that a local control that someone can come in and say because it's a national historic site but it's in a local area, we're going to take that down? No, I don't think so. That will not happen under my watch. Not at all. I, I, I don't see it. Uh, they are what they are. If it does, you don't like it, don't look at it. If you don't like it, don't walk by it. But the bottom line is those were Americans and we need to honor those Confederate Americans just like we do any other U.S. service person. So that's Thank my stand and I'm sticking to it. Thank you, Mr. Clampett. Mr. Queen, your rebuttal, one minute. Well, uh, I, local control is not mob control. Uh, we're not dealing in details here, we're dealing in a general concept. Uh, I do believe in local control, but it doesn't necessarily uh, apply to national monuments and, and other such things. Uh, and uh, I don't see a great abandonment of these statues. I think there's lots of local interest in keeping them. So I think when you have the conversation, it's the people here, like the, the one that we're talking about in, in, in this district is, is at the courthouse in the historic older courthouse, which is now a museum and library. Uh, and that's very much local and, uh, and it can be dealt with with, uh, with uh, a good uh, commission that works for, uh, locally to, to decide its future. I thought the commissioners have dealt with it pretty well under the, under the uh, duress that they've been in. Uh, I, I, I certainly don't think it should be handled by mob control either. So for our next question, this question comes from Nate Hadley, who's a senior at Western Carolina University, and he's the editor-in-chief of the Western Carolina Journalist, the paper here. He says that he asks, both of you have described yourselves as pro-education candidates. Describe what mean, being pro-education means to you and point to where you've demonstrated that in Raleigh. So we'll first go to Mr. Queen. Well, I... Uh, Pro-education means uh, supporting public education from, from my standpoint. And it starts with me with uh, early childhood education. Uh, what we have learned through uh, 
brain science through science of learning that the earlier you invest in a child, particularly a child at risk, the, the, the better outcome that child has. Uh, so you start, you start there. And, and it's a community effort so no child gets dropped through the cracks. Next you work on uh, K-12. Uh, uh, the, the key to uh, uh, education, to my way of thinking, is a quality teacher in every classroom and a, an excellent principal at, in every school. You get that by uh, recruiting them, by getting them into great universities and training them, by, by hiring them, supporting them. Uh, and uh, we have undercut our universities. We have undercut, the universities have been cut 25% in this decade by the Republican majority, the great university system of North Carolina that drives our economy. And, 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 and uh, it's really a key uh, to North Carolina success. But, uh, and uh, so I support uh, uh, K-12, I support community colleges, Community colleges, North Carolina was the first state to have a community college system. Uh, we have 54 plus campuses uh, in every community. I have, I have uh, two in my district here. Uh, and they're wonderful to help uh, people uh, get going. You have, to, you have to fund them. You have to give them the budget. You cannot cut their budget. You cannot cut their support. You, can, uh, you, have, to, you have to support them in universities. I've said the same way. It's it's very important to fund them, and that's what I have done. Right. Mr. Clampett, same question. Two minutes. Thank you. Very interesting. Uh, speaking of pro-education, yes, I'm a product of the community college system uh, with two, one degree and one diploma, degrees in fire science. As a uh, member of the state house, I was the poster child for vocational education training through the community colleges beginning at the freshman level in a high school. That would give students an opportunity to learn a trade, have a trade, and decide if that trade was their uh, outlook in life and what they planned to do for the rest of life. If not, they could change it. Uh, Western Carolina University, I think you all got a new steam plant here a while back uh, and got money and funding for that. Well, in 2016, 18, that's, uh, that's where that funding come from was uh, I work diligently on getting that because that having a good steam plant gives you hot water and heat uh, for all your buildings up here. Also an advocate of the STEM Act, and that's the science, education, and mathematics down. Uh, we have now have a new school in western North Carolina area, which is down off I-40, uh, parallel to the one down east. That way our students that are exceptionally gifted and there's high competition for those classes do not have to drive so far away to be able to get that education. Uh, my opponent in this past session uh, said no to educator pay increases and also said no to low performing schools. Uh, that's a fact on the voting record which I have those uh, here. We can go over them if we like there, Mr. Queen. Uh, I can't argue with the state's website that says on, on your biography on uh, 71 pages of on the votes that uh, about 100 percent were only time you voted unanimously is when it was over 100, and then your no votes were like the born alive abortion bill. You sided with the gov on that. Uh, but anyhow, point being is education, 
Yes, it starts grade school, but you've also got to have a trade. And I, I highly encourage and would love to see more vocational training in our high schools. And by the way, that education is free. Joe talks about free. I can tell you, that's free. You can get a current, concurrent time, education sir. form and get it signed by your principal. You can take college-level classes and no charge. Thank you. Uh, just to add on, this building we're in, I, I helped fund. I was the prime sponsor of this building, this building. The science building that's going up on campus, I helped lead its inclusion in the NC Connect bond. Uh, so I'm big on education bonds. My opponent opposed the education bond. But we got both of these wonderful science buildings. We have another one at Southwestern Community College. Uh, a science building going in there, STEM education facilities, so that our children get the opportunities they need to lead in the, the high-tech world of the future. Here in Western North Carolina, on this campus, and at Southwestern Community College, those are two. The other thing is, is I am I am a strong supporter and have been in this session and will be in the next session of an education infrastructure bond which will help help local government build the infrastructure and help uh, our state build the infrastructure it needs for education. Great. And your rebuttal, Mr. Clampett? Well, I hear what he's saying, but I think the name of the science building is named for a senator. I believe that's uh, Senator Berger, I'm not sure, but anyhow, uh, he says he's the stalwart for all that, and that, that's fine, well, and good. You can say anything, but performance has a lot to do with that, and like I said, I have taken work on career education for adults. Uh, my part-time job that I had a double dual career was firefighter certification training programs. I did that for 31 years through Central Piedmont Community College, which is the largest community college in the state. Carrying that tradition on, I would like to carry that tradition back to Raleigh and get that adult education so that parents can get a living wage for the job they're doing of a job that they like doing. That's Republican Mike Clampett speaking during a forum with his Democratic opponent, State Representative Joe Sam Queen. Those men are running for the State House seat in District 119, which includes Jackson, Swain, and a portion of Haywood County. You can watch that entire forum, plus the many others we have done anytime on the BPR Facebook page. And that's it for our local election special. You can get more elections coverage, including our early voting guide for Western North Carolina, with our free mobile app or at our website, BPR.org. The BPR news team is Ellen Chickering, Cass Harrington, Lily Kinnett, Matt Piken, Corey Valancourt, and myself, Matt Bush. Our work is possible because of listener financial support. Make a gift now if this coverage matters to you by going to BPR.org. Thanks for listening.